Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Kaylin Partlow. Kaylin is an autistic self-advocate and a registered behavior technician, or RBT for short. She recently appeared on the second season of the Netflix reality series, Love on the Spectrum. In this conversation, we discuss how autism affects Kaylin's everyday life, Kaylin's thoughts on how autism was represented on Love on the Spectrum, why she thinks autistic people struggle to find love, what Kaylin learned about herself from her experience on the show, tips for other autistic people in the dating scene, Kaylin's job as an RBT, social skills programs, neurodiversity affirming practices, Greg Hanley's skill-based treatment, Kaylin's ideas to improve the field, and advice for other practitioners working with autistic individuals. In this episode, discover what's possible when social barriers are removed. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Kaylin Partlow. Hi, Kaylin. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a brief introduction. I'm Kaylin. I am 25 years old. I was recently a participant on the Netflix series Love on the Spectrum, and I have worked as an RBT for the last seven years. All right. So let's talk about your autism. When did you first learn about your diagnosis? I think I was probably in high school. I know my parents had mentioned it when I was younger. I was having a really hard time through middle school and later elementary school. And so I know they had brought it up as like a, because I was kind of going through a phase where I would say, you know, I'm stupid or I'm dumb or I'm weird. And they kind of brought it up as a means to be like, it's, you know, yes, you feel different, but that's not the reason why. They told me that it was helpful. I don't really remember this, but we had a more formal discussion about it when I entered high school. Okay, got it. So what are some of your autistic strengths? I think for me personally, I have the ability to feel an immense amount of passion about my topic of interest, and it allows me to learn a lot of new information about it and maybe excel in ways that my peers might not. And luckily for me, my area of interest happens to be my work, so I am a really, really good RBT. Nice. And how does autism affect your everyday life now? I guess, I mean, it it does in in every capacity. So, you know, socially and that's really the big one is kind of maintaining friendships is something that I've always struggled with. And I I still do maintaining connections with people. I think loneliness is a thing that a lot of us on the spectrum face, even through adulthood. Mm. So what specifically is it that you struggle with, with making connections? I don't know. I guess if I knew I could fix it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's tough figuring out the rules of like whose turn is it to invite which person over or 
you know, if they say no the first time, does it mean like they were actually busy or does it mean they didn't really want to hang out and you shouldn't invite them again? There's a lot of those complexities I think can be very difficult. Hmm. Are you getting any support? If someone has time, you know, but it's not always a consistent thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like professional support. No, not really. Okay. Did you receive any services when you were growing up? I had speech kind of on and off and I had OT for six months to be able to drive, but that was about it. Okay. So are there ways that you feel like you're misunderstood with people? Sometimes. I think in the past, people have described me as intense or intimidating, which I kind of found funny at first, just because I feel like that's that's the opposite of how I feel inside, at least. And so it was interesting to hear that that's how they kind of perceived me. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk about your experience on the Netflix show, Love on the Spectrum. What did you think about how the show portrayed autism? I thought they actually did a really good job. There was only six of us participating. And so there's only so much representation you can have from six people. But that said, I thought they did a really good job just showcasing the variety of autism. Mm-hmm. Did you know many autistic people before the show? Like outside of work? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sorry. Like in your peer group? No. Okay. And when it comes to dating, why do you think some autistic people struggle to find love? In the broader sense, I think people can struggle with just the different skills that go into dating. So kind of like what I described with my difficulty maintaining connections, kind of knowing those ins and outs of when it's okay to invite someone to do something or when you should kind of back off. For me personally, I think a lot of it is lack of opportunity. I'm not going to go out to meet somebody at a bar or a party. So it's unless I'm going to meet them at work, which is not very likely, then it's kind of hard to meet people. Hmm. What was your dating life like before the show? I had a boyfriend in high school. And then shortly after high school, I dated somebody else. But after that, there really wasn't anybody. Okay. Have you tried any of those dating apps? Oh, yeah. We talked pretty extensively about the use of dating apps. Okay. And so spoiler alert for our listeners who haven't seen the show yet. You ended up matching with someone while speed dating. You went on your first date and then unfortunately you ended up not meeting up again. What did you learn about yourself from that experience? I think from that experience in particular, I think I learned that I'm really interested in somebody who is kind of on my level conversationally and somebody who is interested in maybe not the same topics, but is open to discussing the same topics in depth the way that I am. And that I don't think I would be satisfied with somebody who maybe isn't willing or isn't able to do those things. Mm -hmm. Right. It's so important to be able to have something that you can both relate to. Yeah, definitely. Are you dating anyone now? No. Okay. So is it a lack of opportunity thing like you were explaining? Yeah, I've talked to some guys from dating apps. Luckily, those experiences haven't been terrible, but they haven't been really fantastic either. Somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Okay. And I believe on the show, you said that you didn't necessarily want to date someone on the spectrum. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Do you still feel that way? I do. I think 
I work with people just like me. I live with me. I, you know, I'm around people very similar to myself all day. And while I enjoy it, I think it would be very difficult to be in some kind of, you know, committed relationship. I mean, I'm already, I already have to live with myself. I think it would be very difficult to date myself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people have an opposite view. Some autistic people think that dating other autistic people will help them feel more understood because that person can kind of relate to what they're going through. Yeah. And I suppose, I guess, like I would be open to it. In my experience, you know, the people I've encountered just in the dating world that are on the spectrum are not people I've been particularly interested in. That said, I wouldn't just completely, you know, discount somebody because of that. I would definitely be open to it, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Mm-hmm. Got it. Do you have any tips for other autistic people in the dating scene? Um, that's a tough one. I think having good conversation skills is really, really important because those first few interactions are really heavy on small talk as well as introductions. And those really matter because if you can do, you know, a passable job with that, you can kind of get to those more meaningful places. So I think, you know, if somebody has the ability to kind of work on some of those skills, it would definitely make dating as a whole much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a coach on the show, right? Mm-hmm. Who was helping people with some of those skills. What did you think about that part? I like Jennifer a lot. I think she's really cool. She lives very close to me, so it would have been really cool to have met her in person. Mm-hmm. Would you ever want to get married someday and have kids? Possibly. I guess I would have to find the right person. Okay. Right. Start there. All right, Kaylin, let's transition into talking about your work. So as you mentioned, you're an RBT, so that's Registered Behavior Technician in the field of Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA for short. We talk about ABA a lot on this podcast, but for those who don't know, could you describe your job? I work with mostly teens on the autism spectrum, teaching a variety of things such as social skills, self-help skills, communication skills. I've also had experience teaching social groups and helping my supervisors write programming and create materials. Okay. And we have a question here from one of our community members, Michelle Vinokurov. She wants to know what inspired you to become a therapist in the ABA field? So my story is kind of unique in that the school that I work for is actually where I went for high school. So I've been here a really, really long time. (laughs) As soon as I graduated, I went through the training to get my certification, and I've been an RBT ever since. So in terms of what inspired me, I think it was during my time in high school, I, you know, anytime I had free time, I would go help out in the preschool classrooms or go to their recess and play with them. And I realized that I was really, really good with not just kids, but kids on the spectrum. And so I think having that experience was what kind of led me to where I am now. Was that around the same time that you discovered your own autism? Yeah, because my parents had enrolled me in this school, and I guess we had to have a conversation before I showed up. I see. Got it. What do you like about your job as an RBT? I like that it's meaningful. I'm not just doing work to feed some, you know, money-hungry person at the top. It, it actually matters what I do. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Okay. Could you describe some of the social skills programs that you do? 
Yeah, I've got a couple learners working on um, conversational audience. So I've got a learner who previously would be reprimanded in school for telling dirty jokes because his dirty jokes were directed at or about teachers and staff. So he was coming in contact with a lot of negative consequences for that, but it wasn't reducing the behavior. So we developed a program to work on that. Instead of saying, you know, dirty jokes are not appropriate at school, you can never tell them he's a teenager. It's going to happen, right? But the reason other teens can get away with it and he can't is because they're not telling adults and they're not directing it towards adults. They're telling their friends. So we were working on, you know, who would like this statement? Who would think this statement is funny? Now, who would not think this statement is funny? And kind of moving into those next steps of, well, what if you did make this statement to the wrong person? How would they respond? And then the flip side of, you know, if you made this statement to somebody who would approve of it, how would they respond and kind of measuring those outcomes? Oh, interesting. Do you typically work with verbal students? Mostly, yeah. Okay. So as you know, there's a lot of controversy around ABA therapy. What is your response when people claim ABA is abusive? ABA has a really, really dark history. But so do a lot of therapies. So does modern medicine. That doesn't negate that it absolutely does have an abusive history and it can still, and it is still applied today in a way that is harmful. However, there are really significant changes being made in this field towards being more progressive and neurodiversity affirming. I think those are really important. Yeah. Could you elaborate on some of the ways that it can be implemented in a harmful way? I think one of the big ones that the autistic community has taken issue with is the reduction of non-harmful stereotypy or the forcing of behaviors just to make them indistinguishable from their peers. So eye contact or kind of, again, going back to stereotypy, but the reducing of fidgeting that is not harmful or not disruptive are some of the big issues that the autistic community has had with ABA. Mm -hmm. Could you describe what you mean by neurodiversity affirming? Yeah, so the neurodiversity movement is the idea that it is natural and normal and acceptable for everyone's brains to kind of work differently from one another. And so neurodiversity affirming would just be kind of an acceptance of that. I guess just the focus being placed on adapting the environment to suit the person rather than adapting the person to suit the environment. Mm-hmm. Right. How would you describe your approach? I think very similarly that we're not modifying people to suit the environment, but we're making environmental modifications to help people. Yeah. I think also, you know, this idea of normalizing people is really triggering for autistic people, right? So there's at the same time of acceptance and understanding that difference doesn't mean bad. Right. I don't know. It gets really tricky because I understand that ABA can be used to really, really help people and change their lives, like teaching them safety skills to not run in the street or teaching them how to go to the bathroom independently, which are both life skills that will kind of transform their independence. But I guess there's a lot of problem also with just the use of reinforcers, for example. And some arguments are that when you're withholding reinforcers in order to change a behavior, then 
it's kind of like manipulating the person. What do you think about that? I think that could be true to an extent. I also think that we are all, you know, not victim to necessarily, but we all come in contact with those contingencies. We, you know, you're not going to get paid if you don't show up to work. So your money will be withheld. And that's kind of a classic example that a lot of people like to use, but it's it's a good one. And it, it applies to everybody. And so as long as it's not done in a way that, like, I think one big issue they take is food. I saw a video the other day where a special ed teacher was using food reinforcers in her classroom for behavior management. And a student approached her and said, so I get to earn food if I meet my behavior goals. And the teacher was like, yeah. And he said, okay, so if I do a good job, I'll get to eat today. And she said that was the day that she stopped using food as a reinforcement because we never know what some kids are going through. And so withholding food from a child who, you know, maybe doesn't have access to that regularly, that's really problematic. And I'm really glad that that was like really eye-opening for that person. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Food is also very, can be a very controversial reinforcer for sure. I try to steer away from it as much as possible. It feels like inhumane in a way to have that much control over someone. Right. Okay. What do you think about the argument that ABA is causing people to mask? So, you know, we have this generation of people who kind of graduated from ABA services as kids and now they're adults and they're speaking up about this trauma. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think, I mean, it would be hard to, I can't speak to anyone else's experience. I do think, I'm sure it happens, you know, that has not been my experience, although I didn't go through ABA as a child, so it wouldn't be my experience. I think there are, you know, things we can do in progressive ABA to prevent that from happening in the future. And ultimately, I think it comes down to, you know, a poor quality of services. If you're teaching someone only to inhibit as a way to avoid negative consequences, that's not quality services. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've mentioned progressive ABA. Do you think that in your area, Greenville, South Carolina, do you think that this movement is changing quick enough? Like, do you see other ABA companies kind of implementing this new approach? South Carolina is not known for its ability to be progressive in any capacity. So change is is there, but it is it is slow. Okay. Got it. What are your ideas of how to improve the field? I think keeping up with current research is really important. Listening to autistic voices is really important, especially those of us who not only speak to our own experience, but have clinical experience to kind of back that up, I think is incredibly important in terms of being progressive and moving on with the field and moving it into a place where it isn't regularly causing harm to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your lived experience specifically is so valuable to the field as a person working in it. Are there other autistic RBTs in your company or BCBAs? No, not at my company. No. Okay. Do you notice a difference in how you connect with some of your clients versus some of the other RBTs because of your autism? Yeah, definitely. I think I've had some pretty unique conversations with clients before in terms of, you know, my own diagnosis. A lot of times I'll disclose that to them if it comes up in conversation. 
Um, that's definitely not the normal experience that they would have with another RBT. We're talking about shared experiences with social skills. They're sometimes surprised to find that my experience is similar to theirs and that it's not specific to them. And I would hope that it would bring them some sort of comfort to know that they, you know, aren't the only ones going through some of the things that they face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at that really kind of like fundamental age of adolescence, right? Where they're forming ideas about themselves. Right. Yeah. So Kaylin, could you talk a little bit about how you choose goals that are appropriate for your clients? I, as an RBT, still am working with the BCBA to determine what goals are going to be appropriate for that learner. So ultimately, the decision is not up to me. However, you know, my BCBAs are really supportive and are always open to hearing that feedback. And so one thing that I really kind of advocate for both online as well as, you know, at my work is prioritizing goals that are going to help remove barriers that the clients are facing today. So this is a hill I will die on. Figures of speech for elementary age learners. Understanding figures of speech is not going to revolutionize the way that they're socializing with their peer group. It's just not. Especially some of the phrases that we're continuing to teach, you know, it's raining cats and dogs, or she put her foot in her mouth. First of all, people don't use those anymore. (laughs) Second of all, it's a colossal waste of time. The barriers that they're facing are, you know, they might have difficulty gaining attention. They might have difficulty, you know, compromise or negotiation or conflict resolution. Figures of speech is not the place that we need to be putting our time into. So advocating for goals that, you know, help them kind of make connections and remove those barriers in their life today, not later down the road, is something that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when you're working on social skills, you know, you're looking at the whole context, right? So there's an autistic student and maybe there's a non-autistic student. How do you kind of use that other student, for lack of a better better word, to create those learning opportunities? So where I work, it's a school and everybody who attends the school has an autism diagnosis. So we do not have typically developing children here. Okay, I see. Have you done any awareness initiatives before with non-autistic students and teaching them about autism? Yeah, we've had high school students come spend a couple days here, do volunteer hours with us. There was a period of time that we did have integrated classrooms with typical and non-typical learners as well. Okay, what have you seen be successful when educating others about autism? I think educating them outside of conflict scenarios, because, you know, kids are going to have conflict regardless of, you know, their neurotype, but making sure you're taking time to kind of educate kids, typical or not, about, you know, the way others perceive things or the way others handle things or the way others think outside of conflict scenarios so that it's a little bit easier to retain that information and then apply it when the conflict scenario does arise. Okay. Could you give an example? So if we're all going to go down to the playground and play some kind of group game, it would be important to get the kids together before we go down to the playground to say, hey, so-and-so really likes to play this game. However, this person over here is tired of this game. We've played this game lots of times. So when we go to the playground, it would be really nice of you if you guys could do both games um, and kind of prepping them ahead of time. 
Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Before letting it escalate and then trying to put out the fire. Right. Okay. Got it. All right. So, Kaylin, you use some of Greg Hanley's skill-based treatment in your approach, right? I have implemented SBT before, yes. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I I love Greg Hanley, actually. I'm a huge fan. I think he's doing a lot for the field right now, especially with his universal protocols. So even if you aren't formally implementing skill-based treatment, you can still kind of take those universal protocols with you into sessions outside of that. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So could you describe what skill-based treatment is? It's a lot of things. I think most importantly, it is taking a learner who has high magnitude problem behavior in the form of behavior that is dangerous, sometimes even life-threatening behaviors, and gradually exposing them to things that are likely to trigger that behavior, but doing so under a context in which they have control of the situation, they feel safe, they're respected, and they can withdraw consent to treatment at any time. And I think that's really kind of shaking things up in the in the field of ABA because we've never done that before. And Hanley has shown time and time again that it works. Mm-hmm. Could you describe a success story that you've experienced? I've only implemented SBT one time and that client was moved to another placement due to an additional diagnosis. So I personally have not had extensive experience with SBT, but it is definitely something that I'm really interested in. Okay, got it. So with that one client, what was the behavior that you were trying to manage? High magnitude aggression and property destruction. Okay. So were you putting that student in a controlled environment to kind of let the behaviors occur? No. So we do not let the behaviors occur. Part of SBT is actually reinforcing low levels of problem behavior so that you don't see the high magnitude behavior. So you're reinforcing at the precursor before it even gets... Right before. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely seen that work with a student who was engaging in self-injurious behavior and hitting his head. So the precursor behavior was kind of shrieking, like making a shrieking sound. And so the function of the behavior was all kind of mixed, but one of them was task avoidance. So first, we obviously looked to see that the task was appropriate for his level, making sure that it wasn't anything that he couldn't do. Because I think that's something that sometimes gets missed when trying to look at a whole situation. Like, are we asking too much of this person? And that's why they're engaging in this behavior. So once that was kind of cleared out, we would reinforce the shrieking, meaning we would take away the work and prompt him to ask for a break so that there's the replacement behavior involved as well. And then eventually we were able to reinforce lower levels of the shrieking, but Ultimately, they were not engaging in the SIB anymore. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. So another criticism of ABA is that it is not allowing people to have control of their own bodies. So this comes 
out through overprompting, physical prompting, hand over hand, kind of really like hovering over people, which leaves people feeling like they just don't have a sense of autonomy. What are your thoughts on that and the use of prompts in ABA? I think kind of the, as you described, the hovering over somebody or being always ready to physically prompt is definitely some an outdated strategy and one that is not necessary to ensure success or even to implement errorless learning. I think saying physically prompting is a terrible thing and we should never do it would be a blanket statement. I think if it's helpful to the learner and it's not something that they find aversive and, you know, it everybody kind of can achieve the desired outcome, then I don't think it's horrible and terrible and should be discontinued. However, it should not be our first thing or our go-to. I think most people would find it aversive. There are some learners who don't find it aversive and it is actually beneficial, but I would say generally it's something to be avoided. Mm -hmm. Right. Because then we hear those stories from autistic adults now who say that being kind of overly prompted like that was just always teaching them that what they were doing was wrong, that there was something wrong with them, that they needed to change themselves. And so I guess that ties into this overarching theme of this trauma that we're talking about and the harm. And I just keep bringing this up because I think it's so important for people to be aware of the risks of ABA and to not just shy away and say that that, you know, is how people used to do it. And now it's changing. It's like, I still see this happening. So I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm doing my due diligence here and bringing all of this to the surface. By the way, do you have plans to become a BCBA and go further with this career? I do not. Okay. What are some of your long-term goals? I would like to move into a role that involves more advocacy work and public speaking at different conferences and schools to kind of bring this message to more people. Mm -hmm. The message about ABA in general or just autism? ABA in general or just some, some practical information and tips people can use as it relates to working with autistic people. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, Kaylin, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other practitioners working with autistic people? I think it would be important and probably really helpful for practitioners to kind of, like I said earlier, look towards and listen to autistic voices, especially those of us who have experience in the field or in a similar field, because I don't think you can get anything that's going to replace those lived experiences and those stories and that insight that you can get from listening to autistic voices and, you know, kind of hearing out our input on how we can better this field. Mm -hmm. So with 25 years of experience being autistic, what do you think are some real practical tips that people can apply when working with autistic people? So yes, it's, you know, listening to autistic voices, but what do you think would help as far as like the hands-on kind of work? I think it's going to be really specific to the people and the context, but having different strategies or having a knowledge of how to implement different strategies, such as pre-teaching. So kind of like I mentioned before with, you know, before we get into a conflict scenario, 
kind of doing some teaching beforehand on what are the expectations of the situation, what's the desired outcome, what's going to be the reinforcement for engaging in the desired behavior. I think that's a really helpful and underutilized strategy. I think there's a lot of tips like that that kind of fall under that category. If people just kind of knew how to implement these smaller things, they would have a lot more success. Mm, That's great. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As Kaylin mentioned, it's essential that service providers listen to autistic voices in order to provide services responsibly. What are some of your key takeaways from today's episode? Share your comments over on our online global autism community. Whether you're a self-advocate wanting to connect with other autistic people, or a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one, or a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.